Well, good morning. Uh, let's turn to Ezra chapter 5 this morning. Ezra chapter 5. And we noted last time that 50,000 Jews had made their way home to the land of Israel from exile. And those 50,000, just a year or two after they arrived, had laid the foundations for the new temple. And it was a time of excitement and joy. It was a time of rejoicing, but also weeping by some of the older folk who had remembered the former temple of Solomon. And last week we noted that as soon as the work appeared to be making two steps forward, then comes one step back when the devil and his disciples raise up opposition to discourage and to defeat the Jews in rebuilding the temple. And this led to the people losing heart. The tactic appeared to work because for around 15 or 16 years, the Jews stopped building the temple. They ceased from the rebuilding of the temple. The people lost heart. And what did they do in those 15 years or so? They began to build brand new homes for themselves, plant farms, start businesses, and rebuild the nation economically. So during that 15 years, they were not idle. They were not doing nothing. But what they were doing was taking care of their family's interests and their own personal interests. And slowly but surely, life was getting back to normal for the nation as a nation. And the people began to enjoy the good life once again in the land of Israel. Now, during that 15, 16 years, no one built the temple. What a tragedy. And it's always easier to give up or compromise when opposition arises. Old Dr. Bob Jones Sr. used to say this. Listen to this quote. He said, character or the test of character is what it takes to stop you. I, I like that. That's a good statement. The test of character is what it takes to stop you. And in this case, it was just a little bit of opposition, albeit from powerful people, a little bit of intimidation and discouragement, and they stopped. And that's where we discover in Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. So between Ezra 4 and 5, there's about 15 years. And Ezra 5, verse 1 says, Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. So God sent two prophets to rebuke the people for their delay and also to encourage them to get up and start rebuilding the temple. And these two prophets were contemporaries. It, think, it seems that Haggai is a much older prophet from some of the statements he makes in his prophecy. Some think Haggai may have seen the old temple. So he may be one of the older men who had witnessed Solomon's temple 70 years before, uh, had seen its glory and its beauty and its incredible architecture before the Babylonians destroyed it. 
Zechariah, by contrast, is a much younger man. He certainly was born down in the exile, and he had not seen the old temple. So God raised up these two prophets, an old one, Haggai, a young one, Zechariah, and through their prophecies, which we have in the book of Haggai and Zechariah, the word of God rebuked the people for their lack of putting God first and rebuilding the temple, but also then encouraged them, God is with you. It's not by might or by power, but by my spirit. It's not by your own talents, your own efforts, but it's with God's help that you can do this. Now, it is interesting at the end of chapter 4, when the 15 years or so delay happened because of intimidation and discouragement, that there's no mention of the people praying. There's no mention of the people seeking God. There were prophets there because Haggai and Zechariah were amongst their number. But there's no mention that the people said, well, we need to find out from God, how are we to respond to this intimidation? How do we withstand this intimidation? No, the people did, as far as we can see, none of that. They just gave up. And they concentrated on their own homes and their own businesses. And the fact that God sent these two prophets uh, that are referred to here, but also in the book of Haggai and Zechariah, to rebuke them for this delay in rebuilding the temple is a very clear indication that God was unhappy, that they were doing wrong, that they should not have delayed. They should not have allowed the Samaritans to intimidate them and discourage them from rebuilding the Lord's house. Now, someone reading this story, maybe listening this morning, may say, well, what's the big deal about the temple? I mean, God's everywhere. Isn't that true? We can worship him everywhere. Down in Babylon, they had no temple. Daniel was able to pray and worship God. They had little synagogues down in Babylon and in the Persian Empire. So what's the big deal about the temple? Why is God making such a fuss over this? Well, the temple in the Old Testament times was of strategic spiritual importance. It was the place where they were to bring the sacrifices for sin. It was the place that represented to the Jewish people and to the rest of the world at that time, God's presence on earth. It was there at the altar. It was there at the Ark of the Covenant, at the mercy seat that God said, I will meet you there. I will pardon you there. It was the place where the Shekinah glory descended in a very physical representation of the presence and power of God. And by delaying the rebuilding of this temple, what the Jews were saying to the Gentile nations was, God's not that important. God's not that significant. God's reputation was at stake by this delay. Of course, it was also a bad testimony to their own children and grandchildren. By delaying for 15 years and getting on with building their own homes and businesses, what, were they, what message were they sending and conveying to their own descendants that God's not that significant, that he's just incidental to our lives? And God sends Haggai and Zechariah to really rebuke them, but also to encourage them to be a catalyst, to rise up and rebuild this, because 
This is a vital ministry. This is of the greatest importance that this temple is built. Now, how did he send a rebuke? Let's turn to the book of Haggai. We'll just spend a little time looking at a few of the references here. But if you go towards the end of the Old Testament and you come to this little book of Haggai, just before Zechariah, you'll discover that God has very strong words to say to the nation of Israel. And Haggai also reveals something that really we don't pick up in the book of Ezra. Because in verse 3 it says, Then came the word of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 1. Well, let's pick up at verse 2. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, so this is what the people were discussing when they're sitting in their coffee shops, sitting in their homes. And they say, the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. So they didn't say, we're not going to rebuild the temple. In fact, it seems that they had every intention of seeing the temple rebuilt. They they recognized its strategic importance and its spiritual importance in their lives, in their nation's life. And they said, "The, the temple should be built. But the time is not ready. It's not the right time. We need to delay. And the delay that began 15 years or so continued year after year after year. People said, God has commanded, we will build it, but not yet. And you know, this procrastination became a sin. And God points out for the, to them in verse 4, it is time for you O ye to dwell in your sealed houses. Now that's an old word that really means paneled. I don't know if you've ever been in a house that has wood panels. It means it's a house of very ornate architectural features. This is no ordinary simple HDB flat or terraced house. This is a beautiful, ornate, picturesque place built with the finest architecture and sculpting and building materials. And God says to the nation of Israel, how long are you going to live in your beautiful houses that you spent all this money and time and craftsmanship on? And he says, and this house lie waste, my house, the house of God, the place where he promises to meet you at the mercy seat, the place of sacrifice and prayer, He says, it's lying waste, but by contrast, your house, your house is beautiful, is ornate, is costly. Now, let me just pause for a second and make this observation. The fact that God noted this, the fact that God puts this in Scripture, the fact that God is angered about this is... A message to you and I number of two things. Number one, God sees everything that we do. Sometimes we have this idea, well, there's church and, and there's worship services and prayer meetings, and that's all kind of the spiritual part of my life, and God's involved in that, and he's watching us there. But when I get home and, and I do my day-to-day things, bring up my family and buy properties and invest and do business. That's my secular life. And God's not really involved in that. We may give him a little prayer at the beginning of the day to bless it. But apart from that, it's really none of his business. That's my business. 
Well, the fact that God mentions this and gives the detail of the type of houses that they're living in lets you and I know that God sees everything about our lives. That's the first thing. But then the second thing that it really strikes to me is this, that God sees our sense of priorities. Not only does he see every detail, but he sees the motive behind that detail. What's greater in our lives, him or the properties? Which is which? And Haggai is doing us a favor here because he's re-emphasizing something that we tend to forget. God is watching. You know, in the book of Revelation and the chapter one, you read it very carefully later. Read how it describes the candlesticks representing the churches. But read carefully how it says the Lord Jesus Christ walks up and down the church. And Revelation tells us he's looking at what the hearts and minds and attitudes and motives of everyone. He notes who's there, who's not there. He notes the ones who are there, what their motives are what their feelings are. Are they listening to his word? Are they interested in serving him from the heart or just outwardly doing a form of service? And that's something we need to be continually reminded. God is with us. We love to be reminded when we're feeling down, Emmanuel, God with us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. But we forget it's a two-edged sword. It means that God's always watching. It means that God's always observing. And the people make these feeble excuses. The time is not yet. It's not yet come. Verse 2 of Haggai chapter 1. There is a time, but it's not just yet. It'll come. And they made all these excuses. But God says, no. The timing may not be ready or right from your perspective, but it's not wrong from my perspective. I want you to get up, rise up and do my work. And let me make a very challenging application to you this morning. What excuses are you using? What excuses are you using to delay serving the Lord? To delay giving to the Lord of your time and your energy and resources? What excuses are you using to say, well, the time's not ready. I am going to serve the Lord. I'm going to go full-time service. Or or maybe I'm going to help in this ministry or that ministry. I'm going to join this Bible study group. I'm going to give certain time of the day to studying the Word of God and prayer for my family, for my neighbors, for my church. But not just yet. I just need to finish this work. I need to finish this project I'm on. I need to accomplish this or that or the other. And then I'll do it. Well, that's just an excuse, isn't it? And really what God's saying to you today is stop making excuses. Stop hiding behind an excuse. And God really says to them, consider your ways. In other words, he says, enough is enough. That's really what he's saying. Time to change. Time to do a U-turn. Time to do a 180 degree turn because God is sick of this apathetic, careless indifference, treating him as incidental. God is not going to accept being treated 
in second, not even in second, in third place, fourth place here. And certainly the Jews took care of themselves. They weren't shy about building beautiful homes for themselves and ignoring God. And God says enough is enough. Now, please don't misunderstand what the Bible is saying here. God is not saying it's a sin to have a beautiful home. He's not saying it's a sin to have nice things in your home. But what he is saying is this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. God's way and God's work must come first in your life, in your family's life, in your church life, in your work life. And anything that comes between God and you is a misplaced priority. That must not happen. And the Jews had to be rebuked here. And I could make a simple application, no doubt, to everybody listening. We've always got excuses to prevent us from doing the will of God, don't we? We always can hide behind our children's education, our busy work life, the mortgage, the need to save up for A, B, C and D, the need to study for such and such a degree and such and such a qualification. If you're looking for excuses to delay doing the will of God, the devil has a million available. He'll think of ones you never even would have thought of. And he'll put them into your mind or he'll bring someone along to suggest that to you. And you know, we have to be really honest before God's word today and say, listen, we've all been making excuses. We've all so looked for reasons to procrastinate. Now, God is not like us. God doesn't just get frustrated and angry when his people behave this way. God has the ability to act. Go back to the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 6. God says, I've already seen what you have done, and I have already acted in judgment upon you, in chastisement. He says, ye have sown much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. In other words, God says, I have put my finger on your life. You put me second, I make sure you finish second. He says, I, 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 I put my hand, remove my hand of blessing upon your physical lives and your harvests are diminished. Inflation eats away at your resources. Your investments don't return the same dividends and profits that you anticipated. And he uses a metaphor here. You're like a person, he says, who takes their wages that they're running after and building these businesses and these beautiful homes. And he says, it's like the man who puts his wages into a bag. And the next day when he opens the bag, it's almost all gone, and then he looks and he sees there's holes in the bag. All the money has run away. Uh, And it's not that this is literally happening. It's saying that this is a picture of what's happening when God curses and judges your physical life and your material life. Uh, And really what God is saying here, when I am neglected, nothing works properly in your life, in your family's life, in your church life. When you don't put me first, you'll discover I have many ways to 
put my hand of judgment upon you, to shake your lives. And he says, it's as if when you, you try to focus on your wealth and focus on your possessions and focus on your business, it all begins to crumble, all begins to fall away. And what he's saying to Israel is this, and what he's saying to you means this. When all these problems assail your life, even material problems, it's not by coincidence. It's not bad luck. It's not because of some economic downturn. God is saying, I have sent these problems because I want to get your attention. I'm trying to teach you that if you put me second, everything will fail to work. Your relationships, your possessions, your career ambitions, your studies, all these things will fail. As the hymn writer says, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. I, I tried the, to drink, the hymn writer says, from those vessels that were broken, that had holes in them. But as I tried to fill them with the water, the water gushed away. They failed me. They were useless. And you know, so many of us are trying to do that today. We're trying to do God's work second and third place the wrong way. And it's failing, and our lives are failing. But you know, God is so wonderful and balanced here. He doesn't just come with through Haggai and Zechariah and rebuke the Jewish people for their carelessness, for their indifference, for their misplaced priorities. He could have just done that. And he certainly would have been justified in simply doing that. But God knows that we are weak people. The Bible says in the book of Psalms, he knoweth our frame, that we are dust. He knows how weak we really are. And that in his rebuke, he also has to bring encouragement because of our weak and frail nature. And God in Haggai chapter 2 and the book of Zechariah sends words of encouragement to the Jewish people. And let's look at some of the words of encouragement. It says in chapter 2, verse 3, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? God says, you know, I know some of you have looked at the, even the foundations and the plans for this new temple. And you compare it to the old temple of Solomon, and it seems that it's nothing. And it seems that, well, it's no big deal. And it seems almost it discourages you from continuing on with the opposition, with also its ordinary drabness compared to Solomon's temple. God says, verse 4, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel. Remember, Zerubbabel is the civil ruler, the political ruler, saith the Lord. And be strong, O Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Joshua is the spiritual ruler. As the high priest, you have the spiritual and the political ruler together leading this nation. And God says to both of them, listen, be strong, men. You lead this. And it says, and be strong, all ye people of the land. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, and work. And here's the promise. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. God says, listen. I've had to rebuke you for your misplaced priority, 
for your procrastination, your delay of rebuilding my temple and focusing on your own homes and your own businesses and allowing yourself to be discouraged. I've had to rebuke you for that. But listen, there's the other side to this. If you really get to work, and you two leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua, you take the leadership here. God's saying, you, you, you rise up and lead these people. And all you people, you get behind them. And God says, if you do it, remember this, I am with you. I'll bless you. I'll watch over you. But then God brings a second, almost a greater word of encouragement. Because in verse 8, he says this, the silver is mine. The gold is mine. Listen, don't, don't worry if this temple is not as outwardly as beautiful and elaborate and expensive as Solomon's temple. I'm God. I, I own everything anyway. I'm not impressed with silver or gold. I, I'm not a human like you who's drawn simply to material things. But God says, verse 9, the glory of this latter house may be smaller, Maybe a cheap imitation of Solomon's temple. But he says, the glory of it shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, how can that possibly be? Solomon had built the greatest building in human history. There's never been a more expensive building ever constructed in human history than Solomon's temple. And yet God says this new temple, sometimes people call it Zerubbabel's temple, which is a similar size to Solomon's temple, but is built of vastly inferior materials and craftsmanship. It's just a cheap functional temple in comparison. God says the glory of this new one is going to be far greater, far more impressive than the one Solomon built. Now, how could that be possible? Maybe you're listening and you're thinking, yeah, how, how could it be possible? Well, listen how God explains it. Verse 9, in this place will I give peace. Because what will happen 500 odd years later is in that very temple built by Zerubbabel and these people. Mary and Joseph will carry the little infant saviour into that temple. And old Simeon and Anna will lift up their eyes toward heaven as they hold this beautiful baby. And they will say, I am ready to depart in peace, Simeon will say. I have seen the salvation of Israel. And the Prince of Peace will grace this new temple. That's why it's going to be vastly superior, infinitely superior, and greater in glory than Solomon's temple. Because the Lord Jesus Christ, God in flesh, will stand in this temple, will teach in the grounds of this temple, and he will bring peace. He's the Prince of Peace. The one who through his sacrificial life and death will bring a perfect salvation and will accomplish a perfect salvation. And one day ultimately he'll reign from that location 
as King of Kings and Lord of Lords when he returns for his second time to this earth. So God encourages the Jewish people, don't be discouraged by these enemies. Don't let them tell you what you're building here, this functional new temple is insignificant, is incidental, it's not worth wasting your time on, that there's more important things to build. No, he says, get this built because in this place, let me tell you, this is going to be the greatest place in history because the king of kings and the prince of peace is going one day to walk in this place and talk in this place. If you remember the Lord Jesus Christ, even as a boy, began to teach in the temple, discussing doctrinal questions, with the priests and the Sadducees and Pharisees and confounding them with his great wisdom. Oh, this is going to be a special place because God is coming. Oh, get it built and get it built soon and put everything into its building because this is God's special place. And then in the book of Zechariah, if you turn, God gives a wonderful word of encouragement, particularly in chapter 4, Uh, When he says, when he shows this great vision of the golden candlestick and the two olive trees, and he said, verse 5, Knowest thou not what these be? What's the meaning of this vision, Zechariah? And I said, No, my Lord, I don't understand it. And God explains, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. In other words, he sends a vision of encouragement, a message of encouragement to Zerubbabel and also to Joshua and the people. It's, it's this, the work of God is not going to be successful because of your cleverness, your talents, your abilities, not by, he says, might or by power. It's not going to be accomplished by mighty armies of force, but by my spirit. That's all you need. And he goes on in promise in verse 9 of Zechariah chapter 4, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of his house. His hands shall also finish it. God says it's going to be completed by you. And verse 10, for who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of the Lord which runs to and fro the whole earth. In other words, he says, God's watching. The eyes of the Lord are running all over the earth and he wants to use you, Zerubbabel. He wants to use the nation and he wants to have this temple build uh, this place of blessing. God's going to honor you there. God's going to bless you there. Now let's go back to Ezra chapter 5. I very quickly jumped through the messages of Haggai and Zechariah. And then we want to see what what happens next. Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. Then. So when, when is this then? After Haggai and Zechariah preached these great prophecies. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshur, or Joshua, the son of Josadak, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. It works. The word of God encouraged them, strengthened their faith to rise up and build. And notice what else happens at the end of verse 2. 
and with them were the prophets of God helping him. Haggai and Zechariah and, and some other prophets, no doubt, that were there, they also participated, got involved in this work. And the work now begins to rebuild the temple of the Lord. It'd be wonderful if we could just say, and the temple was built. Amen, and close the message. But there's a verse 3. It says, at the same time, don't miss this, came to them Tatnai governor on this side of the river. So the Persians had a governor ruling this part of the empire that included the land of Israel, a man called Tatnai. And Tatnai, it says, who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Then said we after we unto them after this manner, what are the names of the men that make this book? So the secular Persian rulers then came and asked intimidating question, who give you permission? Who are the people that are leading this rebuilding of this temple? And the people answer them honestly, this is who it is. But verse 5, notice this time there's a difference. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews that they could not cause them to cease. This time they didn't delay anymore. Even when these questions came, even when it came with a sense of intimidation and fear and almost persecution, a threat of persecution, they didn't stop. They answered it, but they kept on building and praying and building and praying and trusting God. And then notice what happens. Tatnai writes a letter to the king, Darius, and sends it off to the king in Persia. And this letter, if you read it very carefully, from verse 7 all the way to verse 17, recalls and recounts in an honest way of what has gone on and leaves a report with Darius to decide what's going to happen to this temple. And verse 17, it closes by saying, Now therefore, if it seem good to the king, that there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. So Tatnai says, well, I don't know who's telling the truth here. Is it the Samaritans? Is it the Jews? Did Cyrus really issue this decree? that they were to rebuild this temple? The Jews say yes, the Samaritans say no. And he sends this letter now to Cyrus. And no doubt it took a long time to get there through all the bureaucracy. And uh, although they had a very swift postal service, it, it would have taken some time for this King Darius, this new king, to decide what's going to happen next. But did the Jews delay? Did they procrastinate anymore? No, they just got up and kept building the work of God. And there's a lesson there to all of us. Don't let the opposition stop you, intimidate you from doing God's will for your life. Now, let me wrap this up. And I just want to leave you with three simple thoughts. And we'll put them on the screen. Number one, it's easy to be distracted and to be discouraged from doing God's will. It's always easy to make excuses to obey God. 
And if you can't think of any excuses, the devil's happily to provide them. Millions of them. It's always easy. Second point is also related to the first point. It's always easy to let the distraction and the delay become long-term. You know, when you start to say manana tomorrow, you'll discover that when tomorrow comes, there's always another day to delay. And the days become weeks, months, and years. And before you know it, life is over. Reminds me of the story of David Livingstone's funeral. And no doubt you've heard me tell this many times of the old man weeping as his casket was brought through London on his way to St. Paul's. And this old man was weeping and someone said, well, are you weeping because you knew David Livingstone as a friend? Were you very close to him? And the man said, no, I wasn't. He says, I'm weeping because many years ago I went to school with David Livingstone. And God called him and God called me to serve him. And Livingstone went and I delayed. And the old man said, now my life is over and it's too late for me to serve the Lord. That's why I'm weeping in such a bitter way. But then the third lesson that we learn from this story is this. It's better to keep going no matter what the opposition is against you. You know, when you first read this story, it seems that the easy way is to delay, doesn't it? The easy way is to be discouraged. The easy way is to allow the devil and his disciples to intimidate you. But you discover if you read the whole story that actually the hard way is the way of delay. And the easier way is not wasted years, wasted months, wasted life. No. The easy way is to do it God's way the first time. That's the best way. That's the happy way. It may appear tough at the beginning, but in the end, it's the ultimately satisfying way to live your life. But you know, I find tremendous encouragement in this story. Because although these people delayed for 16 years doing the will of God, it would be very easy to delay 17 years. In fact, it would be very easy to delay for the rest of their lives and say, well, we just leave this to the next generation to sort out. But you know, I like the fact that although they delayed, when God's word came, they restarted. And in restarting, yes, they were rebuked, but they got a blessing. And it became known, this temple, as Zerubbabel's temple. It became associated with Zerubbabel and his generation. They got the honor. Yes, it was delayed, but they got the honor in the end of serving the Lord and doing something for God. And you know, I know some of you are listening to me and feeling that you're stuck in a rut today. You procrastinated so much that it seems that it's easier just to give up completely. But the good news is this. There's always a way back with God. Remember the story of Moses? 80 years of age. 
having lived the last 40 years down in the desert, taking care of a few sheep. And it seemed that he'd missed his opportunity to lead his nation by his foolish, rash anger and pride and self-confidence when he was 40 years of age and he killed that Egyptian. God had to cast him out of Egypt for 40 years. And the last four decades, he'd just been taking care of a few sheep. And he's now an old man. His body is beginning to waste and wear out. His voice that once was so young and powerful is now much frailer. And Moses thinks his time is gone. It's over. That the failure is now permanent in his life. And you know, the wonderful thing of that story is God came to Moses at 80 years of age when he felt he was nothing and God said, I can take the nothing and make something from it. I can mend the broken pieces. I can restore the years that the locusts have eaten and I can use you again, Moses. I can bless you, Moses. Procrastination is a sin. If it keeps you from obeying God, God has only one direction for his people forward. He doesn't take you back. He only takes you forward. Someone once said this, the first two letters of the gospel speak about the life God wants us to live. Go, go. Don't delay. Don't procrastinate. Don't look for an excuse. Rise up and serve the Lord. And maybe I'm talking to someone today that God has been speaking to you about serving him, maybe full-time, but maybe just in some area in your life to put him first as the best mother you can be, the best wife you can be, the best husband you can be, that your family should come over your business or over your career. And you've been saying, well, Lord, I can see the sense in that, but not just yet. Just give me another month. Just give me another year. And then everything, I'll turn over to you. I'll obey you. God says, no, no, don't delay. Go now. Rise up. Be a man. Be a woman of God. May God help you to do so. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for thy word today. We thank thee for the blessing, for the rebuke, but also the encouragement that there's a way back. And even this whole generation led by Zerubbabel and Joshua, they delayed, they procrastinated, they made all kinds of excuses. But we thank thee that when your rebuke came to them, they didn't argue, they didn't turn their back on God, and they heard the word of encouragement, and they responded to the rebuke and to the encouragement, and they rose up and they rebuilt the temple, despite the opposition. Lord, we're always going to face opposition. There's always going to be excuses to delay serving thee. Help us to ignore and by faith and with spiritual dependence on thee, give us the grace in whatever capacity you have called us to, whatever role to do it for your honor and for your glory, not to delay, but come and serve you today. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.